There's another podcast you should be listening to, TED Health, a podcast from the TED Audio Collective. Join host Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter as she introduces you to leading health experts and breaks down the health questions you didn't know you had. Learn more about the way your body works and the newest insights changing the medical world, like what a smart bra means for better heart health, three ways to prepare for the next pandemic, and how we can all live healthier lives. Find TED Health wherever you listen to podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm just so friggin' stoked uh, to be sitting down with Nisha Fair once again. Not on this podcast. This is the first time Nisha's been joining us here, but uh, very recently, Nisha was a, uh, was, was a guest on my other podcast with Bridey, Turn Me On podcast. And uh, Nisha, you, you're an author, you're a researcher, you're a trauma-informed pleasure educator. Um, uh, you've, you've recently written a book, and, and the book is what we were actually talking about on Turn Me On. Um, but I'm going to let you kind of take the mic here, uh, introduce yourself to our <laughs> listeners, uh, give us a little bit of insight into who you are and, and what it is that you're all about. So I am all of those things. Um, my field of research is somatics. I'm really a career interdisciplinarian. I don't know how to look at things in isolation. So <laughs> somatics is a really, it's, it's, been a really beautiful home for me to to research and explore and really ask some of the big questions about what it means to be human, what it means to explore corporeality. And so sex and pleasure and nervous system responses has been a really uh, big part of my my search, my my project. Um, I am a survivor of developmental trauma, so that is part of where I started questioning or some of the answers I was looking looking to find in, in my work. Uh, today in my coaching work, I work primarily with female and femme presenting survivors of either abusive relationship or toxic sexual interactions to heal not just their relationship to pleasure, but to really start to dismantle this fawn response, mm. which we'll be talking about today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fawn, the fawn, so the book, the book that I had mentioned earlier, it's called Fawn, When No Looks Like Yes, um, How Your Nervous System is Making You Ignore Red Flags, Question Your Own Boundaries, and Play Nice in Bed. And um, when, we, when we talked about this on Turn Me On, it was, it was kind of a, I mean, for myself, it was a really, um, it was one of those conversations that happen every once in a while in doing these types of, uh, these having these types of conversations where like my mind was just totally blown open. And, um, one of the things that really stuck out to me was, um, how I, how I really had no real concept of what the, what the fawn response is in terms of a, uh, like a nervous system response. And you, you, you really walked it, me and Bridie through it quite well in, in giving us sort of the historical context of, fight or flight and how fawns sort of got tagged onto that sort of fight, flight, freeze, um, you know, the four F's now. Um, it, can you, can you give us a little rundown on like, what is, what is fight, fight or flight? Where did that come from? And how did fawn mm. enter the picture? Yeah. What does fawn mean? Mm -hmm. Sure. Mm. Um, I'm going to do a really broad sweep. And if I miss anything, you guys can remind me afterwards. So, gotcha. um, we have seven different nervous system responses. They're all biological, but depending on um, our sex, we may be predisposed to some more than others. So within this stress response cascade or potential for stress responses, we have a startle response, which is what happens to you, say in the middle of the night when you hear a loud noise, that kind of like, jolting. Um, and that usually triggers a stress response cascade. So whether it's fight, flight, whether it's freeze, fawn, flop, or faint. So those are all of the Fs right there. All of the F words, I call mm. them. 
Um, so freeze, or pardon me, fight flight was discovered in the 1930s by Walter Bradford Cannon when he was studying men who had come back from war. PTSD had yet to be identified, but he observed the way a lot of these men were responding to stress and distress. And he identified that fight and flight were the responses. These were the stress responses. Now, these responses were discovered by watching how men respond to stress. And they really informed 70 years worth of medical and scientific research we've had for a long time. These are the responses. This is how people, all people respond to stress. And it wasn't until 2000 that a female-led team discovered what's called the tend and befriend response as being mm. a response that is largely female-oriented due to our neurotransmitters or hormonal profile and also um, our neurophysiology. So this was a really big discovery and it still hasn't made its way into I think where it can do the most benefit in terms of medical and, and well-being um, research specifically in how we work with the female experience how we contend and, and hold space for the female experience but we can put a pin in that for later <laughs> <laughs> so fawn is essentially tend and befriend gone into overdrive and what's interesting about fawn is that it is a uniquely social stress response. And we don't fawn in relation to oncoming traffic or a falling tree bench. We fawn in relation to people. Ooh. And there are people who have some form of hierarchical power over us, whether it's more physical strength or more social power or influence. So this is where we see, you know, within the male-female relationship, those um. I call it the intimidation submission relationship mm. It's sort of not just set up for us biologically, evolutionarily, but also through our social conditioning. So from a very young age, boys are taught to, you know, punch the sky and go do epic shit and girls are taught to be pretty and be nice and don't make anyone uncomfortable ever, ever, ever. Mm, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so I'm going to stop now and let you guys respond to that and see if I missed I, anything. I must. I I must say that when I was uh, when I was reading the show notes and the things that you the, the notes that you gave us um, you know before recording I was looking at it and when Jeremy you kind of said it right off the bat before we started recording that you had this like when you were you know when you were talking um, with Nisha before you had this like mind blowing experience mm -hmm. and I was just reading those notes and going oh wow I feel like I just learned so much about myself mm -hmm. in the way that I've conducted my adult life subconsciously because when mm -hmm. i read that piece and i'm just kind of i'm looking for it here you said some fawn is one of the responses um when you said it's people pleasing going along with it self-censoring or silencing grinning and bearing it self-abandonment and then and then the the piece about it being um you know more likely to be a uh a, a um a female something that's in the female response I went, oh, wow, I know that feeling. Like when the describe the, your description of what fawning is, I went, I know that feeling. And it's so deeply uncomfortable for me when I have that feeling mm. that I feel like I have subconsciously pushed myself to, to like be in that situation of feeling that as little as humanly possible for the last 12 years of my life. And I, I, I kind of read that going, holy shit, I just have been trying to push away from that feeling because I really don't like Taylor, it. And I, I never even knew that it existed Taylor, I would until say just now. You're probably one of the best people at not experiencing that. Yeah. Like well, you well, like you're a good like example. Like I mean and I yeah. and I mean that in a complimentary way. Like like I think that you and and what so what I think I mean by that, without really, you know, still just learning about this, I think I mean that you're good at setting boundaries. Um mm. Yeah, like like I I've I've I read that and went, oh, this this makes a lot of sense for why I have always been into more like entrepreneurial stuff and never really liked being in a in a hierarchical mm -hmm. sort of situation. And I like being very level and equal with my peers and the people that I work with, and not having um, you know somebody who's you know obviously superior to me in terms of hierarchy um, in my professional life. 
and and I think that spills over into a lot of different aspects. And I went, wow, that's yeah. so that's such a fascinating thing. And especially because, I, and maybe it's because I learned about the nervous system, um, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous systems, in relation to um, my my study of yoga over the past uh, decade, more than a decade. And so I always sort of attached this like asterisk to the nervous system um, that I wonder if, if, if more broadly the public thinks of the nervous system as a bit of like a, as a bit of a woo woo sort of concept and doesn't really take it as seriously as it is like very scientifically and evidence-based um, as it is like, I notice my nervous system most clearly on a daily basis when I ride my bike and do like really hard workouts mm. because I recognize the time that it takes after I ride my bike for my stomach to be able to digest food. And that's something that I notice, you know, daily, mm -hmm. but it's the, the more subtle aspects of the nervous system, like what you're describing in terms of fawning, which I had never even really never could put a word to or understood from a, from an intellectual basis. Um, I think that's, that is like, is, is really fascinating. And I can tell by just what reading something before we even started talking that so much of that has influenced my whole life. Nisha is, uh, I want to ask you a question mm -hmm. about that because hearing Taylor say that, like, I, I mean, that like the stuff that you're saying, Taylor, is, is really true. And, and the yoga thing is definitely a different layer. But I'm wondering if from a society perspective, in terms of like gender roles, I think of like, like the traits that Taylor's talking about are things that are like generally reinforced, positively reinforced in men. So like being entrepreneurial, um, being an athlete, um, you know, you think in like the business world, like climbing the corporate ladder, it's like, well, if you have to step over a few people to get to the top, like, you know, put your needs yeah. above the, the person next to you. But like historically and definitely more so in the past, it's like a, the female gender role has been like, be caring, be supportive, submissive. Be, like yeah. be more submissive. Is mm -hmm. that like is are those some of the things that play into why fawning maybe historically is experienced more? in women? Mm. So it's both biological and socially conditioned. So mm. if I like to think of particular with regards to fawn, I say that evolution is a long game of broken telephone where like what worked in the savannah and in the forests and was really like amazing at keeping our communities thriving and um, helping us to, um, propagate the species and kill all the woolly mammoths <laughs> mm -hmm. um, doesn't serve us in the modern era. Um, not just because our societies are completely different, obviously, but because we don't get a chance to return to stasis. Our society is inherently unsafe. It doesn't matter what your gender or... Um, cultural background is, it's obviously worse for a lot of people than it is for people at the top of the triangle. Um, but everyone is being affected by the hierarchical stress of our current social paradigm. Mm. Um, there are, did I answer that, Brian? Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think that- else you wanted to say? I, I, you did. I heard it, it bribe I, as very like chicken or it seems like a very chicken or egg. Mm -hmm. And it's well, both. I, yeah, but I also answer. I think of it when you say um, you know we're catching up in terms of evolution, like thinking back to like hunting woolly mammoths. I mean, like that's probably where like our evolution is in terms of like how we respond to stress now is like more back in that period. So I mean, it's hard to say that like the way that people were treating each other in the early 1900s is affecting us biologically on an on a evolutionary level um i guess that wouldn't be true though like socially and culturally there's those factors are obviously at play too so mm -hmm. it, like working in uh, i work in data and and we oftentimes are trying to identify what factors influence any specific outcome and the fact of the matter is when you're looking at this it seems like to me 
there are probably so many factors it's hard to say you know exactly what plays what role in this and um it sounded like by by the answer that you're giving like you know, there's a lot of things that are affecting mm-hmm. this and the work is trying to be done to understand what those things are yeah i mean i think that the sorry taylor just real quick. No, no. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. i think that the uh our social conditioning is a response to our biological tendencies that we reinforce mm, mm-hmm, right, what yeah. is already happening for us at a at a body level. So totally. I, th- I can't remember if I talked to you about this, um, Jeremy, on the show, but uh, I, this is a great example. So when we're all about seven or eight years old and we start to go through puberty and our hormones start to increase, little girls incre- experience an increase in estrogen, which increases their emotional intelligence, uh, their self-awareness, and their awareness about the world around them. But because of what's in the world around them, it also decreases their confidence and their sense of safety. Right. So it primes them to be um, lacking in sense of security and puts them in a state, their nervous system in a state where they are primed for action. So there's right. this kind of low grade activation that's already, or you know, whether it's hypo or hyper arousal, that there's this low grade activation that's already being built in at the age of seven. Mm. When they're that young, that's when they start hearing, be nice, be pretty, don't, don't, you know, don't be mean to anybody and don't make anyone uncomfortable. And then they're looking on social media and they're seeing all the ways that they have to be attractive in order to be acceptable as a girl. Uh, whether it's having the right hair, the right body shape, the right nose, the right skin color. And so we have these biological predispositions that are then reinforced by what's happening socially. Little boys get that boost in testosterone, which primes them for risk-taking behavior, boundary pushing, and higher confidence. And at the same time, as those little boys are getting that boost in testosterone, they're being told, go for it, go harder, go do epic shit and mm. punch the sky, right? So it's, I really see our, our social conditioning didn't come from nowhere, right? It's right. not an anomaly. Yeah. It's not an accident. Mm. This is just 10, 20,000 years of doing the same thing every generation <laughs> yeah. and not having awareness of how all these different pieces fit together. And so then there's the bio and the social, the psycho piece is the psychological, psycho-emotional piece is what happens as a result of those biological and social factors, because the effects of those developmental changes on boys and girls last well into adulthood mm-hmm. without, again, having any awareness of them. All of this, I'm going to come to the end of this point, all of this is then made more complicated for any of us in our upbringing, if that upbringing was uh, in any way turbulent or abusive. So those fawn responses, particularly, no matter what someone's gender orientation is, that fawn response will be um, getting more use. It will be more um, easily triggered as an adult. So, um, I uh, I feel like I feel like the way that you are the way that you are describing this, the whole nature versus nurture, you know, the, the topic that's, you know, been at the front of social conversation forever mm. is, um, is, is just like the way that, that is so balanced and logical and the way that so many, that, that everybody needs to hear because I mean, we're polar, polarized socially in so in everything. And I feel like it's way too common. And maybe that's just my perception because I, you know, I get this perception from the internet um, instead of the average person on the street, but that it's either, oh, everything is social or everything is biological. And you, mm-hmm. you, you, you really get those, those two, those two extremes of the argument rather than this, like they're both perpetuating each other and they're, they're they influencing each other. It, it's like, it would right. Be so right. Exactly. To just, to just, disagree with that you know like there's no way that they couldn't be playing off of one another Mm -hmm. and and so i guess when when we get to that part of the conversation where 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 i mean when you you mentioned trauma there like what does it look like when 
like there are certain situations, like I said, in my body where I can, I can tell at least in these like really broad senses, like, Oh, I'm, I'm in, I'm using my sympathetic nervous system right now because I was just in a bike race and you know, my brain was just on high alert for potholes and all these things coming at me uh, 50 kilometers an hour. And then I get home and I try to eat food and it's like, Oh, that doesn't really work very well for another few hours. And I can tell that. What does it look like for the, for a person when they can't switch, they, or they don't Mm -hmm. switch or they, or they switch much, much more slowly from one part of their nervous system to the other, from the fight or flight fawn to the rest and digest and relax. Um, So you're really talking about dysregulation at that Mm -hmm. point, which um, is kind of like, you know, if, if, Nervous system modulation, natural modulation is a uh, nice, easy roller coaster. Um, dysregulation is like one of those crazy screamer fun houses that you go in where people pull at you and come <laughs> from behind doors and um, uh, and you shut down every now and again because it's terrifying. Um, so I want to, before I go into dysregulation, there's something that you mentioned about the combination of the physical and the emotional and social. And I think that's really, if there's any, this is sort of the basis of, of my work and all somatic research generally, is that um, there is no duality and that we are all everything at once. You cannot if you take a cell you cannot extract the part that's consciousness from the cell nor can you extract the part that's emotional or historic or cultural Mm. or racial you know everything is everything um Mm. and we are as physical as we are psycho-emotional as we are sexual as we are social as we are intellectual Mm. there is no part that is more or less important than the other in terms of making us the multidimensional beings that we are. Mm-hmm. Can I, can I challenge um, you just for, for a second? If, if you don't, if sure. you don't mind, cause I, cause I'm very interested in yeah, this. Cause I, I, cause I, cause philosophically I have, a, I'm, I'm, I'm much more dualistic. Um, and that comes from, oh, that, co- that comes from a, that comes from a yoga, <laughs> that comes from a yoga, from a, from a yoga background specifically potentially yoga okay. sutras is a dualistic philosophy. And, and I, I, I agree with you, actually. I, I do think you're right. And this is sort of how I teach this in teacher trainings is that really everything is everything and we're not going to separate. Um, and, but is there philosophically, do you think that there's a benefit to like imagining that we are, that we are, that there is duality and that we can separate one thing from another. And I say that because in my personal experience, I have found that it has been really helpful to try and try and isolate all the things that influence how I experience the world and try to, and try to uh, like bring those down to an idol in order to, in order to ex- try to experience like a consciousness or a, you know, like a, the, the mm-hmm. self, whatever you would, whatever the term is from wherever you come from, um, sort of, yeah. sort of way. I'm just, I, cause I, I do, I do think you're right that there, there is no real separating, but I have found a lot mm-hmm. of, a, a lot of success in imagining that, that you can, that there is duality. Yeah. I mean, I think, all experience is multidimensional and unavoidably so. Um, where you are sitting right now is a complex of your vision, your hearing, your sensation, um, whatever taste you have in your mouth and what you can feel in your skin and the time that's passing while I'm talking. So um, I think that the multidimensional nature of our existence, while we can move from one duality to the other, um, my approach and my invitation to people through my writing and through my, my coaching work is to collapse the duality because dualities create attachment and aversion. Um, and they inevitably take us out of our authentic selves in some way if we're kind of chasing one or the other. Now, I know in some mm. schools, like say dom sub work, that 
people use those dualities as a way of exploring parts of self. And I, I mean, I think there's validity in everything. If it's supporting you to expand your awareness and become more of who you are, then go for your life. Mm. <laughs> right. Can, can you I guys, think that cool. the idea of, Sorry, I was just going to ask, can you, um, can yeah. you explain dualities too? Cause I think, um, I'm, I, I, uh, I'm a little bit lost with understanding yeah. duality too. So dualism is the philosophy of the nature of human existence as being a necessarily mind body experience. Like corporeality is, um, and this is sort of, you know, Descartes, I think therefore I am stuff that has, you know, for better or worse, guided almost 700 years of um, philosophical thought, but it's also had some quite, not exactly ideal effects for people in, um, with mental health issues, and even in terms of how we look at uh, regular physical health mm. treatment. So it's an experience of the body that is necessarily separated into my flesh body my what some people call a meat sack which i think is a really derogatory <laughs> reductive term um and it makes my spine <laughs> i kind of i kind of like it it's very it's very it's very yeah it's very cronenberg it's very like body horror yeah. is it but isn't that but isn't call, calling it a meat sack kind of like that corporate what, uh, what's the word corporeality Cor yeah no, because the meat sack then is saying that all you are is a bag of cells mm. and that there's this other thing that's separate to that bag of cells that is more important or better or smarter right, right? so okay. the issue with duality in terms of where we are now in this conversation that we're having and i suppose where i come at it is that it necessarily creates this kind of top-down hierarchy. When we talk about hierarchies in society, we also have these hierarchies within our own bodies, within our relationship to ourselves. So if I have this mind-body hierarchy where my mind is more important, my mind is smarter, I care more about you know, what my mind can do versus what my body with all of the like intelligence and wisdom that is in every you know, 30 trillion one of my cells, um, then I'm going to be creating a hierarchical relationship with myself, whether I want to or not, whether I know it or not. Mm -hmm. So that's, um, did that explain it a little bit? It did. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Really well. Okay. I, Go no, Nisha, go for it. I feel like you're no, just no, no. I'm good. Go okay, for it. Okay. I, I like. Okay, so so this is so exciting because I knew I knew this conversation was going to be like this, where it was just we were going to be like, holy fuck, what the fuck is? That? Which direction can we go? We're what like is branching. Out. It's so good. I love it. I love it. And what I would like to do is is kind of rein it in a little bit. Now that we have a bit of a, now that we have a little bit of a um a sort of foundation for what it is that we're talking about and, and kind of bringing this back to the fawn response. Um, there's, there's two, there's kind of two places that I was really hoping we could um, kind of direct this conversation to touch on a little bit. And I think this is a good, a good transition based on, on something you were just saying there, Nisha, about this, like this notion of, of like a hierarchical um, sort of like stress response that we have and whether that be in our own bodies or whether that be societal um one of the things that you've said is 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 that you know we as a culture we have we have this unhealthy attitude around death and major illness as a hierarchical stress and just to kind of refer back to the conversation we had on turn me on um if if you're digging this i please go listen to that episode it, it came out april 6th it's episode 229 called fawn when no looks like yes, we we really dive into fawn as a as a stress response, particularly within the the context of a relationship or within like you know an intimate or sexual relationship, and how that p plays out for folks and and you know the challenges that they can face if they are if they are someone who tends to be to tends to fawn in those types of scenarios, and within that conversation, we were talking about we ended up on the notion of death and you said something that blew my fucking mind, like literally Nisha changed my life. 
All right. I'm going to tell you right now in 20 years, oh. I'm going to come back to you and I'm going to go, Nisha, if, it, if I hadn't met you in my early thirties, I, I swear, I swear. Nothing's not, been the same. Yeah, nothing has been the same. And oh it God, hasn't. What and did so, I say? Well, what, what you said, what you said was, uh, we were talking about y- you, you, um, you really like to dive into, into thinking about death and meditating on death. And that's something that I too, mm-hmm. like really value in my life. And it's been a big part of this podcast. It's been a big part of like the three of our lives and our, our friendship. And one of the things that you said that fucking just blew my mind wide open was um, using that, that meditation on death in relation to your sex, like the sex that mm-hmm. you have. And, and, and mm-hmm. every time, like think it, like you, you basically gave me this, um, this exercise to be like, okay, every, t- every time you go to have sex with a partner, Imagine that the moment you climax. Can you read the passage? Oh my God, please. If you have it there, that would be fucking amazing. I would love that, please. Okay. Yes. Let me just pull her up here. Are you tired of hearing the same old wellness advice? It's time to dig deeper and listen to America Dissected from Crooked Media, the podcast that's cutting into the science, culture, and policy that shapes our health. From doctors fighting for their rights to the surprising truths about sunscreen, America Dissected dives deep into the state of health. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes of America Dissected, available on all major podcast platforms. All right. We don't have a sexual repression problem. We have a death aversion problem. We suffer from a gross and pathological incompetence to recognize the fleeting and fragile consequence of our existence and the existence of others. So here's a question. How would you have sex if you knew you would die the second it was over? Orgasm, last breath, off you pop. Think about it really. If a single act of lovemaking was the very last thing you did on this earth, in this life, what would it look like? How long would it last? How would you experience your partner's body if if theirs was the last you'd ever touch? And how would you want yours to be experienced in return? What would you do to etch this final and fatal memory of pleasure into your bones? The feeling of another's hands on your body, the smell of their skin and every inhale and the taste of their lips on yours. What emotion would you want to feel as your essence left your body and returned to the ether forever? And how would you love if you would never live again? If all life everywhere ceased to exist and your soul would never again have a chance to know the unparalleled pleasure of touch, the joy of moving in time with another, the sweet delight of a breath breathed long and deep and full, the kind of breath capable of reminding you that you are more than you think you are. Okay. So (laughs) since that is crazy, since we had that conversation (laughs) on, on Turn Me On. Yeah. I've had the best sex I've ever had in my entire life. And I don't think yes. I will I don't think I will stop having the best sex I've ever had in my entire life until I somehow forget that we had this conversation, which I don't think will happen. Oh. And and so so Sure's so, actually just he's just gotten super good at edging now. Like he's he's been <laughs> yeah, he's like annoyed. technically in the same sexual he's experience edging, now. He's been edging since April. <laughs> yeah, ever since that conversation, he's yeah. just been still so, going. So, so I, um, I well, that's another conversation we can yeah, have. But go ahead. Yeah, totally. So, so the reason I brought that up is is just to, is just mm-hmm. to kind of is just to kind of um, is just to kind of highlight the fact that um, death is a is is something that you think about a lot, and and obviously, and you think about it from it from I mean, in this in this. Um, from this perspective, it's, it's a really unique way of thinking about death and, and meditating on death in a way that I haven't thought about before. And in writing to us about stuff that you wanted to talk about, you, you also, so I, and I, I had said it earlier, but you had said unhealthy cultural attitudes around death and major illness as a hierarchical stress. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious about what that means. Um, uh, because I, I, I can read that and I, I sort of feel like I, I can conceptualize what that is, but but I actually like, what do you mean by, what do you mean by we have attitudes around death as a hierarchical stress? How, like, how does that play out? What does that, what yeah. does that look like? Um, 
death is what we are running away from when our nervous systems are triggered, mm. right? So death is the ultimate predator. Always, will always be. And I think that our attitudes around death, and it's not just social, we see it in capitalism, this like complete inability to meet our impermanence. Um, and with that, I think that that dehumanizes us. The one thing that we will all do, one thing that unites us all is the fact that we're born and we're done and we die and that we cannot face that creates this, particularly in health and well-being, this, um, kind of force that we, and even I think a lot of practitioners run away from and allow that to kind of guide how we live like oh god can't get sick mm. can't get an illness and no one wants to get sick no one wants to lose a limb and no one wants to you know these aren't good things we don't ask for them but i think that because we have these really toxic attitudes towards them and it those attitudes come from ableism i want to say right that it's an oppression due that comes from the fact that if we have one of these illnesses or uh, a serious lasting injury, it means that we're not gonna get the love, acceptance, support, um, and the humanity that we would if we didn't have that illness, mm. disease, or yeah, injury. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, and I like that you, that you said that. And it, it, it makes me think about how, um, although, we, although that's the thought that we have, and sometimes it doesn't mean that societally it, it actually has played out like that uh, uh, for some people, you know, like we've, we recently, recently in the, in the past like year, having a conversation about medical assistance in dying and specifically talking about mm. made from the context of someone living with, um, with a physical disability like CP, right. And mm -hmm. how these folks with CP um, just because of, the illness that they live with and the, you know, the geographical location that they live in, uh, we don't give them the, the, the supports that they need. We don't give them the, the things that, that could give them a quality of life that would be, that can very much be beautiful and amazing and, and mm -hmm. capable. Um, yet, yet we as a society don't. And, and, and so those folks are left with this, you know, some of them, unfortunately, are left with, with the only alternative, which is to just go through with MAID. And, and instead, of, yeah. instead of looking at the issues that they're facing and, and why they don't have that quality of life, we go, yeah, sure. Yep, like, wheel them on in and, and, and mm -hmm. let them go. And it's, uh, it's just, it's a real fucking shame, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and all of that, I think all of that, it just all stems from this notion that we just don't want to deal. We don't want to deal with, with, illness we don't want to deal with we don't want to deal with death we don't want to look at the things that are inherently hard and challenging we just want to mm -hmm. kind of clean our hands from it and 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 not not have anything to do with it mm -hmm. and, and when i when i when i when you read that passage like i think what what really kind of struck me i think is is how closely tied that is to like one of the base core values that we've um, that we sort of like unintentionally talked about and embodied when we started the podcast and then sort of became more aware of as we thought more about what we were doing, um, as time went on, <laughs> yeah. which, um, which, which was like the, which was the, or which is the, the, the use of death in order, the use of the knowledge of, of, of inevitable death to, to live more fully instead of instead of having it um instead of instead of it pushing us away from living like the fear of death pushing us away from actually experiencing life and what it has to offer and going and understanding that the inevitability of our death is is what can make every, you know each moment each experience each interaction relationship whatever uh whatever it may be more um more enjoyable. And it, it actually strikes me as a, um, 
I'm, I'm almost certain that they actually don't talk about this in the Iliad, but uh, Brad Pitt's character uh, in Troy definitely mentions it at one point, one of my favorite movies from the early 2000s, um, yeah. which was something along the lines of like, he's, he's talking about immortality in relation to the gods and somebody's asking Brad's Pitt character, Brad Pitt's character, who's Achilles, you know, what it, um, uh, if the, if he's jealous of the gods or that, that the humans are jealous of the gods. And he said something along the lines of like the, the gods are jealous of us because we get to die and our death is what gives everything that we do meaning and without, without death. And so again, that goes back to our age old conversation about Brian wanting to live forever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What a a psycho. (laughs) Guys, guys, I've I've already come around to not forever, just like a really long time. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, I, Nisha, I, I mean, fuck, I fucking love this so much. I, the the other the other kind of direction that I, I sort of wanted to touch on and and I'm so surprised that it we're almost we're 40 minutes and we haven't even touched on it yet but um is is and again so the the Termion episode really focuses on fawning from from like a, a, a relationship standpoint like with with an intimate with an intimate context but um I'm really curious about how fawning could and and does present in the relationship between like like patient and clinician um uh-huh. and and ha- like you know what does that look like and and what are the challenges that people could face if that is their their the situation that they find themselves in you know like we we talk a lot about like patient advocacy and it's one thing to talk about like like advocating for yourself or having someone to advocate for you um but you know fuck, I, I never really thought about how tough that might be for someone who who just innately um, sort of falls into that fawn response when things get tough, you know? Mm-hmm. So wh- wh- what does that look like to you in terms of the work that you've done? Mm-hmm. So fawn shows up anytime there are hierarchies. So if I was raised, and I mean, we're raised, our society does this too. It doesn't have to happen in our homes where we're taught that people with degrees and expertise uh, know better than we do, right? That they went and they did all this education and they must know because they're the researchers and they've done the training. And so we default to them. And that was the way for probably, you know, as Western medicine started to become um, much more powerful in terms of how it affects us socially in our communities and the world generally, just over probably since like the 40s, 50s. Um, that force um, or that imposition of, of authority has become more, more noticeable and yet it's very subconscious. Mm. So it can happen in between doctors and patients, between therapists and clients, coaches and students, or pardon me athletes um again anytime you have a hierarchy fawn it's like fertile ground for fawn to happen so in terms of how it can show up um i would love to tell you a little story about something that happened to me um because it's really it kind of shows all angles of of the issue so um like i mentioned i'm a developmental trauma survivor and um i have struggled with nervous system dysregulation for most of my life um but for the last 15 years I've been, haven't used meds, I've used completely, in fact, most of the time I used natural um, approaches, but there were times when I needed to use pharmaceutical options, which did not go over well with my body. However, story for another show. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so this one time, it was five years ago, and I think I was moving, I was going through a divorce, I was I had some family drama going on and the dysregulation, I just couldn't get underneath it to um, bring it, bring myself back down to stasis on my own. Um, and that's only happened a couple of times. And when I, that does happen, I just go to a, an emerge and I say, I need just a light sedative to help me regulate my sleep and get things um, back on the up and up. And this time when I went, there was um, three student doctors, residents. And uh, they were being overseen by uh, whatever their teacher, 
don't know what you'd call that position, but it was a, a, a fully fledged doctor. Mm. So one of these guys came over to me and he said, so what brings you in today? And I said, well, my nervous system is dysregulated. I'm struggling to, to bring myself back to stasis. And I just need a little sedative to kind of help me get through the next few days and get back on track. And he said, what do you mean your nervous system's dysregulated? I was like, my nervous system's dysregulated. Like, I didn't yeah. really know how yeah. else to right. communicate that. And that he was like, but he said, what does that mean for you? And I'm like, okay, you don't actually know what that means is what I heard. Because if a doctor or a person in, in that position, um, if you say my nervous system is dysregulated, they should know. Mm-hmm what that means it's very especially today it's very simple although it was five years ago anyways um so I at that point I realized that he wasn't probably that educated in terms of um being trauma-informed and knowing about um nervous system health PTSD that kind of stuff and so I don't usually use this language but I said to him I said kind of like what happens when you have PTSD and he's like oh say so you have PTSD how do you have PTSD? And I'm like, what do you mean? He said, why do you have PTSD? What happened? And I said, you don't need to know that. And he said, how am I supposed to treat you if you won't tell me what happened? And I said, you don't need to know what happened five or 10 or 20 or 40 years ago. You need to treat what's showing up for you right now. Mm. And he got really huffy at me. And he turned on his heel and kind of went to his, his teacher who was right there. I could hear them. And he was like, she's withholding information. And the teacher or doctor was like, what do you mean? She said, well, she says her nervous system is dysregulated, but she has PTSD and she won't tell me why. And uh, the doctor said, you don't need to know why. She almost like repeated exactly my words, (laughs) word for word. She said, whatever happened to put her in this position is none of your business. You're treating what's showing up for you right now. And so he kind of like came over and he's like, so what do you usually take for this? (laughs) (laughs) it was a big it was a big win for me personally because I've been navigating you know not just the mental health space but also you know health and and doctors and emergency rooms as a human for 45 years now but in terms of my trauma recovery for 30 years Mm. and what I want to point out about this particular situation is a couple of things one that doctor was like so like clear on what the boundaries of the doctor-patient relationship are, what um, their purview is, what they can and can't do, what they're supposed to do. But that resident coming in, two things. One, he thought clearly, believed that he was entitled to my entire backstory. But two, he believed himself entitled to my submission to his authority. Right, so this is where if a practitioner of any kind hasn't unpacked their own institutionalized trauma or conditioning around these hierarchical relationships, then they will end up enacting them on other people, no matter how much they, you know, talk about patient advocacy in their med school training. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm interested in, um, I, I do, I do want to also mention that kind of just, um, I guess I agree with you of the insanity of not recognizing or not understanding um, nervous systems. Like I, I, I just had a kid two weeks ago and I asked why, 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 thank you. <laughs> I asked why, I said, why, why is a baby's heart rate so high when they're, when they're in, when they're in the uterus and when they're born and they were like, well, it's because of their, it's because they're in a, they're in their sympathetic nervous system and it takes time for them to, uh, switch over to their parasympathetic nervous system as they are born. And, 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 and I was like, Oh, okay, cool. Like I know about those things mm. as a non-medical human and you know them as a medical, uh, uh, uh informed human. And I'm glad we all know about this. <laughs> like yeah. that was, and I was like, I get it. Um, my, my, the question that I kind of had brewing there was your, your sort of thought, your, your thoughts on, on hierarchies in, society or in humans in general as like a, um, in, in the way that I don't want to, I don't want to assume that you think that hierarchies are, are like, should be completely abolished. Maybe that is your, maybe, maybe that, maybe you are in that camp. I'm not sure, but just want to preface it with saying that's not my assumption. 
Um, mm-hmm. Like when I look at when I look at places where hierarchy sometimes where hierarchies are uh, do work. I think that I think you see it mostly in like in in uh, like animal groups, which of which we are one, <laughs> I suppose. Um, and you know, but when I look when I think about hierarchies, like corporate hierarchies, for example, uh, especially like traditional corporate hierarchies that don't that seem to not really work that well and have deteriorated a lot over the last ten years and are sort of I think in a transitional period where we're refiguring out how that stuff works. <laughs> Um, and I think, and I, and what, something that comes to mind is like, uh, Ray Dalio runs a hedge fund and there's whole, his whole company is based off of a concept called radical honesty, where no matter your position, like every idea is, is considered equally. So, you know, whether you are at the quote unquote bottom of the company or bottom of the pecking order in terms of your rank or, or seniority, your ideas are, are equally considered and good ideas like rise to the top, no matter what. And, and, but that also that the bad ideas are, are, you know, criticized quite extremely as well. That's just something that I'm, that, that springs to mind. Um, yeah, I guess more just generally, what are your ideas on hierarchies in general? What, where are they useful or do you think that they are useful? Um, well, I want to bring it back to the kind of health lens. And the reality is that you can't heal anything inside a hierarchy. Mm. Um, if I, as a practitioner, am reenacting my assumptions about what it means to have power in a healing relationship, I'm going to be imposing myself on my client. So I really, the trauma-informed care, which is really it ought to be the gold standard and it's supposed to be, but it's not always enacted and practiced um, ideally because we're humans and we're not perfect. Um, (laughs) Damn. Um, (laughs) Healing must be collaborative. Um, And that's really where I come at everything. And I think relationships have to be collaborative. All relationships have to be collaborative. Um, You know, we're not, lions or wolves we have very very complex societies and particularly when we look at the level of oppression that um, we are reinforcing in our patriarchal society fawn is the linchpin that holds it all together fawn that submission response is the reason that people are allowed to impose themselves over others so Um, I think in terms of being able to, for someone to heal that yes, hierarchies are not, um, are not useful um, within, within healthcare relationships um, of any kind. The other piece that I want to sort of, I suppose it kind of tags onto this is that if I was anybody other than who I am in that situation that I described that little story, Mm -hmm. um, like not just having 30 years of navigating, like, doctors and and um healthcare but also being professionally trained and practiced in trauma-informed care um i probably would have gone down that rabbit hole and and allowed him to force me to disclose my story uh which would have re-traumatized me triggered me probably sent me even further down the pit of dysregulation right so and the issue with <clears throat> particularly in healthcare, when, whether you have a, all illness is complex, right? And we can't assume that we're entitled to someone's story or that they, they need to sacrifice their agency for our authority or uh, opinion, mm-hmm. right? And that's mm-hmm. really what it comes down to. And I think it's why we really need to open up and have more options for care than I think are available mm. for people. I think there's starting to be more natural and, and non-traditional approaches to, to healthcare, but we really need to open that up more so that mm. people have more options and can feel <laughs> truly in command of their healing process. I, I think that's a really, like the, it's a, a really important point that I just want to echo is, is that point about the doctors not being entitled to your, history because when you said 
when you said, when you're telling the story and you said that the doctor asked that and you said, I'm not going to tell you that like my um, emotional reaction to it is like, Oh, well the doctor needs to know though. Like how, how can the doctor treat you? Like emotionally, I feel like, Oh, well you like, you know, it's beneficial to you to disclose that. But in, in the case, and even just in, in the point that you just made about like, well, if you feel like you have to, and then you start to go down that rabbit hole with them and, and start to relive that trauma and, and and then that puts you again into this emotionally dysregulated state. Like that's far more damaging to you than saying no in that situation. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, I I just like that, to I me, mean, if I, I was in that situation, yeah. I would have been like, "Fuck, I have to." Yeah, and, and that's, think that's about where the, trauma yeah. Care well, that's where this from, this right? is like where this hierarchy yeah yeah is yeah. It starts to play out. Sorry, I go mean, ahead, Taylor. Just like not to not to go into mo- into the most controversial arena that exists today, well, I think. Let's do it. Uh, uh, but you know, when you think about when you think about what the last two years have served up to us, and how you know what wherever you fall on the spectrum of vaccines and mandates and mm. whatever the government says, like you can see through this conversation how some entity telling another telling people what to do, whatever that thing may be good or bad, whatever, wherever you stand on it mm-hmm. can start to create a major problem mm-hmm. because you are creating a situation where there is a hierarchy. And I think the reason I asked that question uh, to you before about hierarchies is that, is that when you sit to think about it, it is really, really hard to find a situation where a hierarchy makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. And, um, and so when you, when you think about the world that we've been living in for the last two years, where uh, the hierarchy, I guess, of government and regulation has made itself the most obvious it's ever been to the average, to the everyday person, um, you see how that can create some pretty fucking Mm. massive problems socially, um, and how people end up reacting and they're reacting from a stress response, a, a stress response, mm-hmm. an emotional response that has to do with their nervous system. And I mean, really, I mean, this is this conversation really encapsulates. Mm. I mean, if you just if you just extrapolate this conversation into, you know, a few other very adjacent arenas, then you start to understand why the world is the way it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I talk about this in the book. Oh, sorry. Go quickly. No, I talk no. about this in the book that we we are where we are because we're just generations, like 10, 20,000, 40,000 years of running and living in our stress responses. That is, that is who and how we are. And our behaviors, behaviors that we see are proof of those stress responses being triggered. I really like, I really believe everything comes down to nervous system um, because that's, essentially creates the behavior that we are able to see uh, in one another. Mm-hmm. Um, guys, how good is Nisha? A1. So good. Nisha, uh, again, the, the book, uh, Fawn, When No Looks Like Yes, it, uh, it came out April 12th. It's available now. You can find it on uh, Nisha's website, nishafair.com or Amazon. Um, Nisha, how can people find you and stay up to date with the work uh, that you are doing? Please uh, let, let us know. Yeah, so nishafair.com. Uh, my Instagram is at nishafair. And uh, that's about it. I tried to keep it pretty simple. Mm. Thank you. Like, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's just such a oh, fucking pleasure for having me. to chat with you. It's so much fun. Uh, and and mm-hmm. I, I think we should uh, we should do this again. And I think there's some other things that we could talk about. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm yes, looking forward to having you back on the show. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, awesome. Thanks again, Nisha. Re- really great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced, 
and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.